Blog Talk Radio. February 12th, 2016 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and I am glad to see a number of my usual listeners here in the chat room with me today over at Blog Talk Radio. Uh, some people that I don't see quite as often necessarily. I think Herman has been here before, but I haven't seen him, I think, for a while. Uh, Fiona, welcome back. John Roberts, John Kenny, Trevor is there. Uh, Kay McInnes, Redmond MTB, uh, had a little message. I'll have to get back to you. Rob Abiera, welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, Rob, thanks for sending me, by the way. Hillary Clinton has... Uh, you know, or not Hillary Clinton, it's Ted Cruz who has a little video about Hillary Clinton. And uh, thanks for sharing that. It's um, it's pretty bold, I think, of Cruz to put this new ad out there. If you go to the Don't Let It Go Unheard page on Facebook, you can see it, but it's also been, you know, kind of shared around everywhere. Let me see if I can, I can pull it up. Um, I'm not even sure if I've watched it with Oh, yeah, I, ha- I have watched it with audio because there's some rap music behind it or whatever. Um, but uh, it's good to be a Clinton. Is that is that the idea? It's good to be a Clinton. That's what we're hearing. And the idea is that Clinton can get away with anything. And uh, it's a little spoof on something that I didn't even know about, office space, right? It was a little play on some current culture. Yeah, Fiona says uh, in the chat room here, everyone is loving this. She says, I just saw it this morning and laughed loudly. I I know one person in my Facebook feed actually gave Ted Cruz a donation for the first time and I think said that it was the first donation that he had given any political candidate either in a long time or ever simply because of this ad doing the spoof on Office Space. So if you're there here listening to me live in Blog Talk Radio, you have access to the chat room. The link is there. Um, it's up at politico.com. You can find it as well, apparently. Ted Cruz office space ad. Um, people are really loving his ads. I saw another ad earlier this week where it was basically a support group for people who had supported Marco Rubio and were horribly disappointed. So he's having a really good time with ads. I think the only person who is having a better time with ads is, of course, the Texas Lawhawk. And maybe you've heard me talk about the Texas Lawhawk. Maybe if you follow me on social media, you've seen me post 
the video from the Texas Lawhawk. I've posted it on my page on on Facebook. But uh, this guy posts, you know, he's, he's he's an attorney in Texas and doing all the usual kind of stuff, arrest DUIs, whatever. And he puts an ad out there that is just wild and crazy, low production values, but just wacky. And he gets so much attention that now he has made it into a Taco Bell commercial on the Super Bowl. Uh, So this last weekend, you may have seen him in the Taco Bell commercial. Hopefully you already knew what was going on before you saw that commercial because it's a lot more funny if you already knew who he was. But he's wild. And so I went ahead and shared that at the bottom of the program notes for today's show. So hopefully you can enjoy that. If you have not yet seen Texas Lawhawk, then first go to YouTube, search Texas Lawhawk, watch a couple of his commercials, and then watch the one that's at the bottom of my program notes. So for those of you who are new and you aren't familiar with the program notes, go to my blog at don'tletitgo.com. That's don'tletitgo.com, and you'll see the program notes at the top for today's show. I've got another alliterative, I'll say that 12 times fast, alliterative, alliterative, show title for today. This is thank you to the letter I, Innovation, Intervention, Interest Rates, ISIS, and Ignorance. And all of those, I guess, nouns, yes. Nouns. Do we have all of them being nouns? Yes. Uh, They all relate to news stories that I've got posted in the program notes for today. I may have stretched a little bit on one of the categorizations, and you can tell me which if you want to. What I do know, though, is that the very first entry in the program notes is a total stretch because it doesn't really fall under any of those unless, I I guess my take on privacy and the third party doctrine is somewhat innovative, so maybe it qualifies as innovation. Um, And, of course, privacy having to do with all the innovations in technology. So, yeah, I'll stretch it. I'll stretch it and say that even that is covered. But you may have seen this week the Federalist Society released a short video that I had recorded material for back in December. And it's on the third-party doctrine. They specifically wanted me to tailor it to the question of email And they were interested in the news hook of Hillary Clinton putting email on her own private server in order to have more privacy and security. So they wanted to tie the third-party doctrine into that. I didn't mention Hillary explicitly, but I did mention the idea of having your own private server as an option to keep more email privacy. So you can check that out. What I want to do, actually, is I want to play the audio of the video for you. And part of the reason is very selfish. In my view, you don't necessarily have to watch the video. The video is well produced in terms of there's all kinds of, um, you know, nice emphasis of certain key textual formulations that I have in there. Um, There's a lot of key, you know, nice graphics and everything. But I do not like the way I look in this video. There is a reason that I speak to you on a weekly basis on radio it's because I can just worry about what I'm saying and I don't have to worry about what in the world I look like, what silly facial expression I have on my face or anything else. Because when I see myself in this video, I think deer in headlights, deer in headlights. That's how I think I was. And there were a variety of things that went into that. One of the things is that I was very keen on making sure that I was stating 
you know, the points in my particular formulations that I had formulated ahead of time. And they wanted me to be looking in the camera the entire time as well. But I had these formulations that I was very married to, and I wanted those to be the things that wound up in the video. I wanted it to be concise and precise. And to get that, I wanted to stick to my specific formulations, but I didn't have them all memorized. I had at least 20 minutes worth of material based on questions that they had presented to me. So kind of the the background is the very initial little blurb, uh, you know, that kind of states the problem is a, you know, problem statement that they gave me and they just had me read. But the whole rest of it were answers that I scripted for myself based on a list of questions that they had given me. And like I said, I really wanted to make sure that I had the formulations keyed a certain way and, and get all of, you know, as much information as I could per second. It's a very short video, only three minutes. So because of that, I was feeling awkward. I was also sick. Those of you know I had surgery in the mid-November range, and this was still towards the beginning of December. Plus, I'd had a cold at the time. You can kind of hear a little bit of a squeak at the beginning in my voice and everything. So I was just run down. You know, I did everything I could with the makeup to be, okay, I, I, don't, I look sort of healthy, okay. But I was just awkward. So soon I'm going to put out a video where I'm just talking to you and I'm relaxed so that you can see I don't look like I have deer in headlights all the time. I just, like I said, a little awkward. But the video, the content is good. It's getting a lot of views. I'm hoping that it is starting to get people thinking about the third-party doctrine and the problem that the third-party doctrine poses for us in today's society. Because, again, we use technology to do so many things, conduct so much of our lives online, and that means we're sharing information with these third parties. And as long as this doctrine stands out there, the Fourth Amendment is not protecting so much of our personal information. Oh, um, Daring Headlights asks Herman the German in the uh, chat room there. Maybe I like to pride myself on the fact that I have precise um, speaking habits, so I, that I actually speak with precision. Maybe I'm assuming that everyone knows what I mean. Deer in the headlights. Uh, the I guess the rumor, I don't know because I haven't really run into deer myself very much living in California. But the idea is that if you see a deer in the road, that they just sit there and stare into the headlights with these big wide eyes and they don't, yeah. So that's that was me. Um, no, it, it may have been. I didn't articulate properly, Herman, so don't apologize. Deer in the headlights. Um, I don't want to say it too quickly. I want everyone to understand. So that's how I feel. Let me go ahead and play you the audio of this clip so that you uh, can get what I think is the most important part of it, which is the content. Everyone worries about privacy nowadays. Identity theft, privacy settings on social media, electronic monitoring. How private are the emails we send? Does the government know to whom we are sending emails? Who is sending us emails? Does the government read our emails? When does the Fourth Amendment protect you against searches and seizures? And in what situations does the Fourth Amendment apply? The Fourth Amendment protects our persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. A search is presumptively reasonable if it's done pursuant to a warrant based on probable cause and particularized suspicion. The third-party doctrine 
says that whenever anyone shares information with a third party, the information is no longer protected by the Fourth Amendment. This means that there is no longer a constitutional requirement of obtaining a warrant based on probable cause and particularized suspicion before the government can access the shared information. Most people explain this result as an application of the reasonable expectation of privacy test. Once you share the information with a third party, it's thought, you no longer have a reasonable expectation of privacy in it. The government not only has the power to obtain this information without a warrant, it also has the power to combine all of this information about us into a single database in a way that no private company ever could. If you really care about email privacy, it's important to choose your recipient wisely. If you would like to have more protection than the law currently provides, there are a couple of options. First, host your email on your own private server, and preferably your recipient does the same or maybe deletes the email after he's read it. The second option is to choose a service that provides end-to-end -end encryption, in which case the content of your email is never shared with the service provider, the third party. It's shared only with the recipient. The third party doctrine could be said to dilute the protections of the Fourth Amendment, particularly today where we live so much of our lives, conduct so many of our transactions, engage in so many communications in ways that require sharing information with third parties. Now protection of much of our personal information, information that we routinely share with third parties, depends, at least at the federal level, solely on statutory law. And statutes can be repealed or amended fairly easily at any time. In this context, we see that the Fourth Amendment today protects less of our personal information than it did at the time that it was written. All kinds of cool little graphics go along with those sound effects there at the end. So that is the very packed, just about three minutes worth of information on it. So I think that works pretty well. It's got a lot of points that, again, I was trying to make very precisely. So feel free to send the video out there. If the price of getting all this information spread more widely is me looking like I look like I'm the deer in the headlights, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. So um, it is a good video. I thank the Federalist Society for producing it. The deer in the headlight look I uh, own. It is my responsibility, not not theirs. Um, and I, I thank them for giving me the opportunity to get those ideas out there. What I do like, if if you would also, if you are sharing this video, if you could also share a link to my article where I talk about what I think the solution to the problem is. And that's the article, Don't Tread on My Metadata, which was published a couple of years ago at PJ Media. I have the link to that article directly below the YouTube video, again, over at my blog at don'tletitgo.com. Um, but yeah, in that article, I summarize what the argument is for my law review article, my more technical law review article. So I'm trying to get that out there. I'm hoping that I can influence some people and try to actually get rid of this third-party doctrine, get us back again to a regime of privacy based on property and contract. People in the chat room here are talking about things that you can um, say and not articulate very well that will lead to people misinterpreting you. So, for example, if you do not enunciate Ayn Rand 
clearly people think that you're saying I uh, excuse me Iran like so the Iran Institute instead of the Ayn Rand Institute etc yeah Ayn rhymes with mine Ayn Rand Institute that is correct um, has Fox News made a mistake like that? Who knows? A lot of people have made mistakes like that. I, I, you hear Rush Limbaugh sometimes say Ayn Rand instead of Ayn Rand. I do believe that when Ted Cruz was on the floor of the Senate that he pronounced it correctly. So kudos to him for doing that. So um, anyway, thanks for indulging me about my little video, The Third Party Doctrine. Those of you who have been following me for years know that I've talked about that a ton, but it's just good to get that out in higher circulation. As far as I know, there are at least 12,000 views on Facebook for this video, and then on uh, YouTube, at least another 11,000. So it is getting around. A lot of eyes are seeing it, and and as I said, I hope it's going to have some influence. I hope some people will go on to read that article. So let's talk about innovation. And this is really the article where I think I'm stretching it a little bit because it's not so much innovation as it is discovery. But, you know, I guess the innovation would be the technology that allows us to make this discovery. Deborah Sloan sent me this article this morning. So thanks, Deborah, for sending it. Uh, Gravitational waves discovered at long last. They say ripples in space-time have been detected a century after Einstein predicted them, which is going to launch a new era in astronomy. This is from Quanta Magazine, published February 11th yesterday. They say ripples in space-time caused by the violent mergers of black holes have been detected 100 years after these uh, gravitational waves were predicted by Albert Einstein's theory of general relativity and half a century after physicists set out to look for them. Uh, The discovery was reported by the Advanced Laser Inferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory team, that's a a mouthful, confirming months of rumors that have surrounded the group's analysis in the first round of data. Astrophysicists say that the detection of the waves opens up a new window on the universe, revealing faraway events that can't be seen by optical telescopes, but whose faint tremors can be felt, even heard, across the cosmos. So how have they detected this? Um, you know, they've had to, I guess they've had to detect it with this advanced laser interferometer <laughs> gravitational wave apparatus, right? Um, so just the technology to be able to do this. Uh, they say advanced LIGO bouncing, uh, the, the technology, I guess, uh, ba- bounced laser beams back and forth across the four-kilometer arms of two L-shaped detectors, one in Hanford, Washington, and the other in Livingston, Louisiana, looking for coincident expansions and contractions of their arms caused by gravitational waves as they passed. So they say, um, excuse me, using state-of-the-art stabilizers, vacuums, and thousands of sensors, the scientists measured changes in the arm's length as tiny as one thousandth the width of a proton. And they say this sensitivity would have been unimaginable a century ago and struck many as implausible in 1968 even. So innovation which leads to discovery, which leads to the confirmation of theories that have been around for about half a century, um, which is amazing. at least half a century, right? A hundred years, right? But predicted by Albert Einstein. So 
that is incredible. Those of you who are scientists, of course, are um, probably more excited than all of us because maybe a lot of what you're doing is depending on uh, this type of discovery. But for the rest of us, if you want a little bit of innovation that is likely to affect your daily life fairly soon, there's a Forbes article, again published yesterday, and the title of it is, The Robot is In and It Will See You Now. And this is, as you can guess it, about medical technology, right? Instead of the doctor is in, the robot is in. And this is written by a practicing radiologist in Denver who is describing a current attempt to use a computer to read uh, you know, ra- radiology imaging uh, material and actually detect tumors and other problems that appear on the films that are taken either with a CAT scan or ultrasound or MRI, et cetera. And, um, you know, what he's been talking about is that all his life as a radiologist, he's trained to recognize it when you see it, you know, and he has always believed that human beings are uniquely capable of this. But now because of the computing power that is possible, then what you're able to do is you're able to upload tons and tons and tons of images. Let me see if I can uh, get the figure again. But what has happened here is IBM recently bought a healthcare technology company to get access to a whole bunch of medical images. And what they're doing is they're going to teach Watson, the supercomputer that beat human contestants on Jeopardy, to read CT scans. And it says that they now have 30 billion, B, 30 billion, billion with a B, medical images acquired through Merge Healthcare. And they're going to feed all these into Watson. And, you know, the way that the article puts it, Watson is going to medical school. And they're saying that at the end, he might be able to tell, you know, a benign growth from a cancerous growth. And if so, says this radiologist, quote, the days of my caffeine-driven carbon-based perception machine are numbered. And he, as a free market type, is actually welcoming this uh, innovation. He's saying, look, right now, healthcare is rapidly headed to constitute 20% of America's GDP. And so, you know, because of that, everyone is trying to find ways to reduce costs. So not only can the person who serves you McDonald's fast food be replaced by a computer of some kind, a very simple computer in that case, it may even be the case that a radiologist, here his name is Dr. Jason L. Kelly, practices radiology in Denver, um, that he could be replaced by a computer. So it's not just so-called low-level jobs that are going to be replaced by machines. In fact, a lot of things can be replaced by machines. And the other thing that Dr. Kelly is hypothesizing about is that for routine medical uh, innovation, or excuse me, routine medical checkups, you might just go to like your local Walgreens or where they're going to have, you know, Theranos machines. You remember Theranos is the um, company that is doing all the innovation and blood testing. Uh, This is what Dr. Kelly writes. He says, if Elizabeth Holmes, you know, the Stanford dropout who founded Theranos, has her way, 
primary care is done too. He says, imagine walking into your local Walmart. Really, it's probably going to be Walgreens because I think that's who they're working with. But he says, and sticking your finger into the primary care machine. It takes a couple drops of blood as well as measuring your vital signs. And through the cloud, it references the latest medical literature more up-to-date than any human physician. It then prints out your care plan, including electronically sending prescriptions for your cholesterol and thyroid medications to the pharmacy. And he says, of course, it will probably also notify the Department of Health and Human Services that you had a bacon cheeseburger last week, which will result in your health insurance premiums going up, end quote. A little bit of uh, sardonic humor, I guess, there. But you get the idea that it may be the case that a whole lot of routine medical examination could be done automatically through machine. Of course, if there is a weird result, it would be good to have that kind of double-checked by a human being to make sure that there isn't a machine malfunction. But I, I like this idea. I, You know, this idea that healthcare costs will go down, that you have easy access to routine information, probably quick access to a lot of routine information. So, uh check that out in the in the wave of innovation. But what is it that's going to interfere with us being able to continue to innovate and to enjoy the fruits and the benefits of all this innovation? The thing that will interfere with that is of course government intervention. <laughs> Trevor in the chat room says if you're standing on the scale in one of these primary care machines, I mean, because that'll that'll be what it is, right? So you stand on the base, which is the scale. You stick your finger into the thing, and you put your arm in the blood pressure cuff part, right? And it's going to examine all the things at the same time. So Trevor is um, imagining that it has this scale, and it's going to print out a form stating, you're fat, now get off me. Um that's something that probably the Lawhawk would put in his commercial, that it's going to do that. You have to go check out his commercials and see what I mean about that. Um, SFMO Mo in the chat room is saying, the sad thing is we may have already been far down the path if not for all the healthcare regulations. Yeah, I mean, it, it's getting to the point where we are careening quickly towards socialized medicine. And are we going to elect somebody who's going to become president in 2017, who will stop this. Uh, that's remaining to be seen here. Ed in the chat room says, the doctor's government monopoly on writing prescriptions will prevent all of this as they will fight tooth and nail. I mean, the question is, how long will they be able to fight it insofar as you know the government's going to keep reducing, reducing, reducing what they get paid? And they may, you know, kind of relent for some of the routine things. Uh, it, it is interesting that this doctor, he's not upset that he's going to be replaced by a machine. He takes it as part of the natural progression of innovation. And even quite exciting that, you know, he wouldn't have thought that you could have had a computer that would replace him. Only when you have this wonderful supercomputer, Watson, does it even seem plausible. So stay tuned because we'll find out now that they're on this project whether Watson is actually going to be capable of reliably detecting cancers. Uh, but what I envision, if companies like Apple stay on track, I'm, I'm a little bit upset with Apple this morning, by the way. Um, I mean, we know that Donald Trump, if he's elected president, plans to interfere with what Apple can do. 
I actually put a link in the program notes today to something that I've talked about before, which is Donald Trump saying that he's going to get Apple to, quote, start building their damn computers and things, end quote, in the U.S. So if someone like Donald Trump gets into office and gets his way, there will be interference with Apple's ability to innovate. But it also seems that Apple's kind of going off in different directions that might make my dreams for Apple less likely to come true. One thing that I posted on my Facebook, it was after I had already prepared for the show this morning, it says that um, Apple is producing its first scripted television series, and it's called Vital Signs. It's going to be a dark, semi-autobiographical, excuse me, semi-autobiographical drama starring Dr. Dre. Dr. Dre was the founder of Beats, and so that's how he's involved with Apple. And they say that this is going to feature at least one orgy scene. Why are they doing this? I don't know. I guess they think it's going to make money. It's going to make them cool. Um, What I'm wondering is if producing stuff like this is compatible with the kind of stuff that I'm envisioning where I have my little iPhone, right? And it's going to have like a portable ultrasound app and it's going to have a little app that you can plug other things into and like do your little Theranos prick your finger blood test right through the phone and all this stuff. You know, the Star Trek where they, you know, the doctor, was it... um, who was the doctor? Oh, my God, I'm blanking on his name. But, you know, the doctor, he would sit there and, and uh, it's not Jim. Oh, it's not Scotty because Scotty's the – who is it? Tell me who the doctor is. I'm not going to be able to let this go. But, you know, he would just wave this device over you and scan your body. And I'm waiting for iPhones to be able to do this. You know, it's going to happen someday. McCoy, thank you, Dr. McCoy, Rob. Where is my brain? So, um. Yeah, I'm waiting for that. But is Apple going to continue to innovate in the direction that's going to create all these exciting things for us or not? Yeah, Leonard Bones McCoy says Dan in the chat room. Thank you, Dan. Also, he's got even the the fuller answer. Excellent. Um, i got people. Now I'm over on Facebook. See, now I'm distracted by Facebook. I've got the comments here. Uh, uh, Timothy says, leave Dr. Dre alone. He's a fine musician. If he want to act, let's see if he's got talent. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. No, of course. I mean, they have a right to do this. Um, I agree with that, that they have a perfect right to do this. And sure, you know, see if somebody has talent. I don't know about his music. Um, I would have to go ahead and take a listen for myself. I'm more of the Jezebel type. Um, but... With him, the thing that I'm worried about is all this stuff with the orgy scenes and stuff. It just doesn't seem like the Steve Jobs type of Apple material. Uh, But I'm willing to be proven wrong. We shall see. Dr. Dre is good, he says in the chat room. Uh, Mo says Apple is losing focus. I mean, that is my concern, is Apple losing focus. Redmond MTB says Netflix... Prime, Vita, Hulu, etc. They have competition for living room eyeballs. Doesn't sound good, but Marco Polo has similar orgy scenes and it is quite good, so maybe wait to see what it is first. Okay. We could be open, but I am. I'm worried that they're losing focus. I want them to really 
improve these little devices that we're holding in our hands and make them able to do even more amazing things that they can do now. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, but surely, you know, the companies themselves, they can distract themselves, they can lose focus. That is one risk in terms of innovation. But the biggest risk is the risk that comes from government intervention, namely force coming in and not allowing the innovators in the industry to do what they would want to do otherwise. Let them make their own decisions. Just you know, another example of how Obamacare is killing the healthcare industry as I speak right now to you. Humana is another insurance company that is saying it might bail on Obamacare. This is again published yesterday, the 11th of February. They say it wasn't long ago when Obamacare fans were wagging their fingers at critics, saying industry profits prove that the law was working, and they've been noticeably silent as insurers are reporting huge losses. Quote, it turns out that the law that the insurance industry shills demonize has been awfully good to insurance company investors. That was from Huffington Post about a year ago. And then the writer went on to point out the good news that was reported in IBD. Um, you know, I can't wait, Wendell Potter concluded, to see how IBD's editorial writers spin United Health's Obamacare success, etc. And now IBD is saying back to Huffington Post, we can't wait to see how Potter and other Obamacare fans are spinning the law's quote-unquote success now that insurance companies are showing big sustained losses and threatening to pull out of the program next year. The latest to join the list is Humana, which just reported that profits fell 30% in the last quarter of 2015 and has set aside a reserve for expected losses this year. It's now saying it, quote, continues to evaluate its participation, end quote, in the individual insurance market. What I know as a person who purchases an individual insurance policy is that my premiums went up a big amount again this year, and moreover, the um, you know the office visit fee that you pay it went up I'd say at least thirty percent for me this year. Now, what are they talking here? Oh, whether um, are they talking about a plan? A um, Oh, whether Obamacare, like a plan of, of Obamacare is successful, depends on what your standard of success is. This kind of goes back to the question of whether Obama really knows what he's doing or not. And that was a you know little side debate that Rubio was having with Trump. Rubio was saying that Obama does know exactly what he's doing, and Trump is saying, no, he doesn't know what he's doing at all, otherwise it would be a success. Yeah, if you're if, uh, Dan in the chat room says if your standard is selflessness and sacrifice, Obamacare is a resounding success. If your standard, it doesn't even have to be that abstract, right? If your standard is pushing everyone into single payer, of course, doing that is based on selflessness and sacrifice. But you know, if you want to push everybody into single payer and destroy the healthcare industry, and you know, on the on the Alinsky kind of idea, you want to have everybody dependent on the government for their health. Yeah, it's it's a resounding success. Why? Because those huge Medicaid expansions, thanks to politicians like Kasich and Chris Christie, Christie's dropped out now. Kasich should drop out, although I guess he was, you know, buoyed by his false victory in in New Hampshire, second place or whatever. Um, 
you know, but these guys signed on to the Medicaid expansion, which means they themselves made the decision as supposedly Republicans to bring a whole bunch more people in their states under the single-payer system of Medicaid, that's going to be very hard for any new president who wants to repeal Obamacare to undo, right? So you're already getting them in the single-payer. And then you're also getting this consolidation of the market because of insurers who are saying that they are thinking of dropping out, that they're no, no longer going to provide these individual plans. It's going to get to the point where someone like me who might want to buy an individual plan is going to be pushed into an Obamacare plan, that that's going to be the only thing that I'm going to be able to get. And that means I'm going to have my health care controlled even more by government bureaucrats. So this is horrible. And insofar as everybody shoved into Obamacare and the regulations that govern Obamacare plans are going to govern the types of treatments and procedures that are or are not covered, are we going to see the benefits of all the types of innovation that are out there? Suppose a supercomputer is going to be very expensive for a while, but it's actually much better at detecting you know, the tumors because it's able to look at things in some kind of fine-grained way or something. Uh, maybe it's a little bit more precise. That would be amazing. Are we all going to be able to even have access to that technology in a situation where, look, I mean, if, if you can get imaging done, and avoid a physical biopsy if that imaging is very accurate, why not do that? Um, you know, there's been a lot of innovation in blood testing. It is quite possible now for a pregnant woman to avoid invasive genetic testing procedures and just use a blood test to screen, you know, for a lot of the uh, chromosomal defects and things like that. There's wonderful innovation if you're willing to spend the money and if government is increasingly going to get to decide and pick the winners and losers, that is really scary. It is going to stifle innovation. Only the innovation that's approved is going to win out. And and this is the point that Ed was making in the chat room earlier that, you know, if, if the government's going to get to choose this and the doctors, enough doctors have enough sway with the government, then the primary care machine that Dr. Kelly and Forbes was hypothesizing would never happen. Uh, cost of government innovation, if you want to see that, just go to Venezuela, which is the you know kind of poster child of socialist countries right now. I've got an article from The Guardian UK that just came out this week, I'm trying to see, yeah, Wednesday, the 10th of February. And um, things are getting so bad that now the latest is that the state or the you know the country Venezuela is asking more than 100 malls in Venezuela to close for the purpose of saving electricity they're having to ration electricity and officials are saying that the measure is going to help the country cope with problems due to a severe drought caused by El Nino that's what they're blaming it on and this is what you know a like a totalitarian kind of regime, a statist regime is always going to do. It's just a temporary problem. There's this temporary emergency. You just got to close the mall for a little while. It's going to be fine. But no, I mean, I, I think it's it's a very, very ominous trend. If they don't, you know, reverse course, it's going to be very, very bad. I mean, of course, 
toilet paper shortages and all the other things that we've heard about. But this is a horrible step. One um, notable thing is that the article mentions that malls, shopping malls, are thought of as havens from violence for many people. I haven't been to Venezuela. I've been to Brazil. And I recall when I went into a shopping mall in Brazil that you had heavily armed guards there, which meant, I mean, it's a little bit unsettling to see a heavily armed guard, but you also feel safe. And I assume that that's the same thing. So they say, you know, shopping malls across Venezuela, they have closed their doors early to comply with a government electricity rationing order. The socialist government is asking more than 100 malls to close or to generate their own power for four hours each day, 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. So what do they do? Everybody's waiting outside the doors when there's these closures. I mean, that's horrible because they're kind of sitting ducks, you know, a whole lot of people waiting, congregating, could be targets for violence. This is a terrible situation all around. Um, The workers who work in the mall, right? What about them? One fast food restaurant manager has said, uh, quote, I need my salary. I can't let myself become unemployed at this point with everything getting so expensive. This is what government intervention in the economy eventually leads to. And what do you have? You've got Sanders right now asking for further and further controls on the economy, further and further redistributions of money. Um, Now, Roger in the chat room, he's going back to the idea of having a primary care uh, computer. And he's saying one bad thing would be that the conventional wisdom and dietary knowledge would be programmed into this computer. Yes, and that's probably true, that you wouldn't necessarily agree with the recommendations that are part of the database that the computer is accessing. So you would. You'd have to be careful with that. But... I think that if we did have a truly free market in medicine, there would be the paleo theory primary care computer. And then if you went in there and you had, first of all, it would have kind of different cholesterol tests probably. There would be certain things that it would think was more important than other, you know, similar primary care computers. But moreover, it wouldn't necessarily recommend statins and start prescribing those for you. you know, there's some that would have theories of Hashimoto's. There's some that would, you know, automatically prescribe certain thyroid medications for you versus other ones. There'd, there'd be options in the uh, proper free market economy, but we can't even envision this. We aren't even permitted to. Why? Because right now the federal government is amassing more and more power to itself to dictate every aspect of our health, to make us dependent on the federal government for all the decisions about our health care. Now, what about the options of getting rid of Obamacare? I already said that even if you have Ted Cruz, and Ted Cruz is promising to repeal every single word of Obamacare, he's got three free market, very free market oriented uh, innovations that he wants to put in right away to try to open up competition and everything else you're going to allow for the sale of insurance across state lines. Um, You're going to expand the use of health savings accounts so that people can have more tax-free choices, and you're going to unbundle um, insurance from employment, right, those things. So I think those would be tremendous, but it's still going to be a challenge for him to sell that because already we've got people 
who have been put onto the single-payer rolls, who are getting these Obamacare subsidies, and they feel like they're going to be losing something that they're, quote, entitled to, it's going to be tough. What is Donald Trump? The you know Basically, it seems right now to be a Trump-Cruz option. If you're going to vote Republican in a Republican primary, those are the two candidates that seem to have the most support behind them right now. So what does Trump want to do? Trump says he wants to repeal Obamacare. But if you ask him, if you press him on it, and what does he want to replace it with, it sounds very much like Obamacare. And this is something that was observed at Reason.com back in September of last year. And he says, you know, most of the time when Donald Trump talks about policy, he doesn't really give you any details. He's going to replace Obamacare with, quote, something terrific, which is very vague. But sometimes he actually says a little bit more to that. So um, there was a 60 Minutes interview, and Trump was asked what he's actually going to replace Obamacare with. And, you know, the question is, what was your plan for Obamacare? Pelley asked Trump. Obamacare is going to be repealed and replaced, said Trump. Obamacare is a disaster. If you look at what's going on with premiums, they're up 40, 50, 55 percent. And Pelley says, how are you going to fix it? And Trump says, there's many different ways, by the way. Everybody's got to be covered. This is an unrepublican thing for me to say because a lot of times they say, no, no, the lower 25% that can't afford private, but, and then Pelly interrupts, universal health care? Trump doesn't respond with a yes or no. He says, I am going to take care of everybody. I don't care if it costs me votes or not. In other words, he doesn't care if it costs us money out of our pocketbooks or not, or not right? He says, everyone's going to be taken care of much better than they're taken care of now. Pelly says the uninsured person is going to be taken care of. How? How? He says they're going to be taken care of. I would make a deal with existing hospitals to take care of people. And you know what? If this is probably, and then Pelly says, make a deal, who pays for it? And Trump says the government's going to pay for it. But we're going to save so much money on the other side. But for the most, it's going to be a private plan, and people are going to be able to go out and negotiate great plans with lots of different competition, lots of competitors with great companies, and they can have their doctors, they can have their plans, they can have everything. So really, he wants to avoid the details, but everybody's got to be covered, and we're all supposed to go out and buy private plans. It sounds very much like Obamacare. So Reason concludes he wants to replace Obamacare with pretty much Obamacare. Uh, More recently, Trump's plan for replacing Obamacare, quote, we'll work something out so people aren't dying. We'll work something out so people aren't dying. This is David Edwards over at Raw Story, published a little bit over a week ago. Republican presidential frontrunner Donald Trump revealed on Sunday that his plan for replacing Obamacare was, quote, to work something out after he repeals Obamacare. An interview with ABC's This Week, Stephanopoulos asked Trump to answer Ted Cruz's charge that he's advocating single payer. Ted Cruz is a total liar. Trump replied, I'm so against Obamacare. I've been saying it for two years. I'm going to repeal and replace it. He's a liar. And then Trump is on record, uh, of course, saying that he wants everyone to be covered by health care insurance. And Trump says, that's true. I want people taken care of. I have a heart. If people have no money, we have to help people. But that doesn't mean single payer. It means we have to help people. How do you do it, the host asks. 
quote, we're going to work with hospitals, we're going to work with our doctors, Trump said. We've got to do something. You can't have a small percentage of our economy because they're down and out, have absolutely no protection, so they end up dying, end quote. I love how he says that. You can't have a small protection percentage of our economy. Why not talk about people, right? And are people going to sit there and be actually dying on the streets because of this? Um, but, you know, we're going to work something out, but it's not single payer which means something like Obamacare because they want to pretend that it's not single payer, that there's you know free market elements to it, but there are going to have to be some subsidies, of course, because people can't. Yeah, yeah Dan in the chat room has it right. Everybody's got to be covered is eventually going to mean single payer. And if it's not single payer right away, it's going to mean single payer very quickly down the road. And with Obamacare, again, the transition to single payer seems to be happening a lot faster than anyone would have predicted. Okay, so this is, you know, like we said, the the cost of intervention here. We are seeing that Obamacare is killing insurance companies and therefore the ability of any insurance companies to offer you any kind of innovative difference. And and so far as we get consolidated into single payer, it's going to start killing medical innovation as well, which is terrible because Right now, it seems that there is, you know, technology is cheap. Research seems, the cost of research seems to have been going down because of technology getting cheaper. And we're in this place where we could innovate so much more than we are. And there is still a lot of innovation going on. It's very exciting. You know, there's treatments for Alzheimer's. And they talk about they're maybe going to have a test for the Zika virus within a week or something. I saw a headline about that. You know, imagine they're going to have a test for something that's fairly new very quickly. And this is all possible because of all this technology. But how long can that go on under government control? Again, just look at Venezuela. One little kind of interesting tidbit about government innovation. Right now, we have a, quote, recycling industry. And the recycling industry is supported a lot, of course, by government mandates, uh, government programs subsidizing the recycling industry. It turns out that recycling is, you know, it's, it's never been profitable. As far as I know, recycling has hardly ever been profitable. I'm sure there's some things that if you recycle them, they're profitable. Maybe copper, right? If you recycle copper, maybe other kinds of metals and things like this. But one thing that has probably never been truly profitable, ne- you know, never truly supported by the free market, is recycling plastic, for example. Now, recy- recycling plastic is even less economical. Why? Because oil prices have dropped so much. Um, I, I remember reading that people in Michigan are looking at getting gas for just under a dollar a gallon now. That will never happen in California, of course. They'll never let that happen in California. But at least in California, they're starting to let us enjoy per gallon gas prices of something like $2.50 for premium, I think I saw the other day that you can you can actually get a little bit more of a deal on your gasoline. But it turns out that the cheaper the oil is, the cheaper it is to use the, that petroleum to make new plastic as opposed to recycling the old plastic. Uh, the article that I have is from the New York Times, and it was originally the headline that I clicked on was something like, you know, that 
recycling plastics is no longer economically profitable or, or you know feasible given the skid in oil prices that you should just make new plastic. So here's the story. It's from Newark, New Jersey. In a cavernous recycling facility crisscrossed with conveyor belts, enormous bales of crumpled plastic bottles are stacked atop one another waiting to be sold to the highest bidder. For waste management, the company that runs this operation, collecting, sorting, and bundling recyclables was until recently a very profitable endeavor. Why? They have you know, a government-mandated monopoly, of course, right? Uh, a year ago, waste management could have fetched $230 for each bale of thin, translucent plastic. But today, thanks to the glut of cheap oil flooding global markets, they're worth just $112 each. So think about that less than half the price of what it was a year ago. So the oil prices are also putting this, you know, bloated recycling program into a crisis. I would love to see recycling go away. Ed in the chat room says that the only things that have ever been profitably recycled are steel and aluminum. Nothing else makes sense. Okay. Well, I, I assumed that it was very few things, and I was thinking about copper, but maybe even copper is not. Al says, don't worry, Obama is going to take that away from you. A $10 per barrel tax is coming. How is Obama able to give us a $10 per barrel tax without Congress? Or please, don't tell me Congress is going to sign on to this $10 per barrel tax. And then, of course, when oil prices go back up, are they going to repeal that $10 per barrel tax? No, of course not. They're just going to have us absorb it like everybody else, and then we're going to turn into Europe and have the same per gallon or per liter tax prices, you know, gas prices than that they have there. This is this is sadness. Ed says that recycling as a concept is based on the fact that almost no one understands the role of prices in economics. Yes, that is probably true. But those of us here who know that recycling is an industry that has been created almost entirely by government force, that it's not anything that's come up due to a spontaneous demand in the economy, we know that it must not be profitable. Because if it was profitable, it would have existed without the government stepping in. Same with solar. Same with a, a whole lot of other things. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Is the government going to continue to prop up the recycling industry to make up for the fact that it's not profitable right now? Maybe that's where this $10 per barrel tax is going to come into play. This $10 per barrel tax is going to go to subsidize the recycling industry. Um, Ed is, is going to have a, a small concession to me here in the chat room. He says, copper may very well be profitably recycled on a small scale, as is, of course, yeah, okay, so gold, tungsten, titanium, and other expensive metals, but not on industrial scales. Okay, that makes sense. Um, uh, Robert Nasir in the chat room has a nice little song that he's writing about recycling. And yeah, I mean, this this is the hypothesis, right? That a $10 per barrel tax is going to go to benefit propping up recycling. Why? Because recycling, quote, saves the environment. In terms of improving the environment for human beings, don't tax us. Let us use the money to improve our own environments. One thing that I would like to do, Obama, instead of you making me pay that, is I have to currently actually replace the outdoor uh, compressor for air conditioning at my house, right? 
and what happens is it leaks freon. And I had a, a guy who came by and actually did the little test to make sure, isolate the leak and make sure it is the unit. So I have to replace this unit. I have to spend money in order to improve my human environment so that my house is livable and cool for me. And I don't want Obama taxing my gasoline. I don't know how $10 a barrel is going to translate into my prices at the pump. But I would very much like... California to get off my back. I would like Obama to get off my back. I want to enjoy the tax prices, I mean, excuse me, the tax prices, the gas prices that they're having in Michigan. Why can't I have a dollar per gallon in California? Why? Because I live in the socialist state of California. Yeah. Anyway, um, another thing that is going on due to government intervention, but it has another eye for our alliterative show title this week is interest rates, and in particular, negative interest rates have been in the news this week. Stock markets have been doing badly, and I guess a lot of people are then putting their money who knows where. A negative 0.5% interest rate, why are people paying to save? Uh, The headline above that is below zero. This is over at the New York Times, published today, February 12th. By the way, if anybody wants to call in and talk, that would be great. Um, the number is 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. I have over a half hour to go, so you can chime in on any of those stories that I have over at DontLetItGo.com. So here's the New York Times trying to make sense of negative interest rates. Uh, Janet Yellen has said, apparently, there's a photo of her here on the article, and it says that the Fed does does not envision having to institute negative interest rates. No, she hasn't fully ruled it out by saying that. The Fed did not envision. And, of course, the Fed people who are Fed officials, they speak in kind of obscure language, and everybody spends their whole time trying to decipher and, and infer what is meant by this. When I read did not envision means doesn't rule out that we would have potentially negative interest rates here. But, I mean, let's let's think about how ridiculous this is. And here's the New York Times trying to do it. They say, when you lend somebody money, they usually have to pay you for the privilege. That has been a bedrock assumption across the centuries of financial history. But it's an assumption that is increasingly being tossed aside by some of the world's central banks and bond markets. A decade ago, negative interest rates were a theoretical curiosity that economists would discuss almost as a parlor game. Two years ago, it began showing up as an unconventional step that a few small countries considered. Now it is the stated policy of some of the most powerful global central banks, including the European Central Bank and the Bank of Japan. On Thursday, Sweden's central bank lowered its bank lending rate to a negative 0.5%, from a negative 0.35% and said it could cut further still. European bank stocks were hammered partly because investors feared what negative interest rates could do to bank profits, you think? Federal Reserve Chairwoman acknowledged in a congressional testimony Wednesday and Thursday that the American Central Bank was taking a look at the strategy, though she emphasized no such move was envisioned. Why are they looking at this? They say as negative rates in which depositors pay to hold money in bank accounts became a more common fixture, there are many unknowns about what these policies mean for finance, for the economy, and even for the definition of money. 
so how do they work? In the cases of interest rate targets sent by, uh, set by the central banks, they set a negative target rate for banks, and banks in turn pass it along to their customers. The ECB, for example, currently has a negative 0.3% rate, meaning that when banks deposit money at the central bank, they pay for the privilege. Banks have a different way of passing the negative rates on to depositors, often framed as fees for keeping money in an account. Negative interest rates by another name. Bond markets re reflect these rates too, including for longer-term government debt. And they say companies generally that borrow money are viewed as riskier than governments, so they have to pay higher interest rates. So the negative rate corporate debt is still rare, but it has happened, that they say. Um, why don't people just withdraw cash, right, instead of doing this? But they say this is why economists had long thought that negative interest rates were impossible. And this is why central banks first turned to other tools, quantitative easing and all this stuff. But now it looks like the convenience of keeping money in a bank account is worth a small negative interest rate or fees for most consumers. So the idea is that they think they can just get away with it. Storing and providing security for cash may be more expensive than a small bank charge. Interesting, right? How is it supposed to help the economy? They say the same way that it's always supposedly helped the economy when a central bank cuts rates. Lower rates encourage business investment and consumer spending, increase the value of the stock market. So it's just an attempt to try to make up for all the effects of government intervention in other places. So intervention leads to negative interest rates as well, which of course is going to lead to money not actually paying when it's invested. Instead, you have to pay to store your money. You're not going to be able to make any more money by lending it, and therefore you're not going to be able to invest it in other places and innovate in other places, etc. Uh, Redmond, MTB in the chat room says, we need to blow up a new bubble. What would that new bubble be exactly? Uh, is it going to be a housing again? Maybe this is a bubble. People are going to start, you know, balking at this when they realize that they're paying to store their money instead of actually getting some sort of interest rate to do it. <sighs> Keeping cash is, is kind of a pain, right? And it is easier to pay that way. They suck you in by you've got um, free web bill pay and all those types of things. So maybe people are going to tolerate it. Maybe they won't. Maybe only if it's a slightly negative interest rate, they'll all test, you know, how negative can it be? And, you know, when will people start withdrawing their money from the bank? And there are also limits on how much you can withdraw at a time. That's also an issue and a problem. Going on to ignorance. Are we ready for ignorance? I've got an article from the Orange County Register. It's echoing a lot of other articles that you may have seen around this week. Millennials heed the siren call of socialism. This was published on February 7th, an opinion piece over at the Orange County Register by Joel Kotkin. He's at Chapman University in uh, Orange County. So the biggest story this election season is not Donald Trump or the fortunes of the two winners in Iowa, and he calls them the unattractive tag team of Ted Cruz and Hillary Clinton. Mm, I disagree with him there. Uh, Ted Cruz is uh, far superior. He says, for all their attempts to seem current and contemporary, these candidates, and Trump as well, 
represent older, more established elements in American life, such as evangelicals, nativists, and for Hillary, the ranks of middle-aged women, seniors, and public sector unions. Since the biggest and most important development has been the massive support among the new generation of voters for Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders and his open embrace of socialism. In Iowa's Democratic caucuses, which ended with a Clinton-Sanders virtual tie, young people opted for Sanders at an almost inconceivable rate of 84 to 14 percent. In 2008, Barack Obama won this segment, claiming only a 57 percent majority. So he says, we're seeing the embrace of an openly socialist septuagenarian by a generation that within a decade will dominate our electorate and outnumber baby boomers as soon as 2020. And he says, basically, this should put all of us on notice. Whether you're a Republican, a free marketer, or even a Democratic-leaning crony capitalist, you should be afraid. Why? Because they are embracing socialism. And he goes on in the article to talk about, you know, why would this be? He said this would have been unimaginable in any previous moment in the past half century. Uh, 36% of people ages 18 to 29 favor socialism, uh, compared to barely 39% supporting capitalism. Uh, Support for socialism drops precipitously to 26% among people ages 30 to 44, tumbles to 24% among those ages 45 to 64, and only 15% among those over 65. Why is this? Because they have no memory of the consequences of socialism. So one thing I think you could do, um, and by the way, the article here goes on to talk about the you know the Soviet unions, the collapse of the evil empire, um, and also you know different consequences of Soviet-style politics, you know government crackdowns on the individual and, and actual, you know, uh, deaths caused by socialism, et cetera. Um, what can you do now? You can spread the consequences of socialism today, namely the story of Venezuela. And that is precisely what I understand John Stossel is doing in his latest special on socialism. It is very, very important to educate millennials about what socialism actually is, and what it leads to. Um, Because a lot of people just don't understand. Um, Now, in terms of the future of capitalism, uh, writes Kotkin, he says, the future of capitalism depends on making the system work for the majority of people, etc. So this is where I lose him. You know, he talks about what you have to do is you have to make all the millennials happy under capitalism, you have to make their lives good under capitalism. And it, to me, it's sort of like a Marxist perspective, uh, the idea that, you know, the thing that causes people to join ISIS is because they're poor and they don't have anything better to do. And here it's, you know, the only way that you're going to get young people to embrace capitalism is to make sure that, for example, they don't have to keep living with their parents in their 30s um, you know, he, he's he's implying that somehow what we have now is capitalism, which is a common error. Of course, we have a mixed economy, a lot of socialist elements here. But he says, no, capitalism needs to change from its current trajectory. The predominant system of crony capitalism clearly favors the already affluent, which is partially true, of course. He says, at the same time, non-socialists need to do a better job of explaining the past failures of state control. He says, most millennials, as the Reason Foundation has pointed out, 
do not even associate socialism with a state-centered economy, which most of them say they would strongly oppose. Right? Millennials are looking at their student loan debt. They're looking at the fact that they can't find jobs. And they're worried. And they, you know, look at Bernie Sanders. And Bernie Sanders is promising to solve their problems. And he's going to go ahead and, and take care of them. And that sounds very, very good to them. I actually do have a call here in the studio that I'm going to take and let somebody else have a chance to talk. But, you know, my strong urging because of this is that if you can go out through your social media, whatever channels that you have, to actually educate millennials as to what socialism is, that it is very authoritarian, that it means big government, government control of every aspect of their lives, which I think that most people who have any sort of individualist spark in them at all will strongly oppose, right? Let them know that socialism means a state-centered economy. Let them know that it's eventually going to lead to censorship and all the things like you see in Orwell's 1984. Let them know that this is what it is. And then eventually, um, maybe these people will come around before they become a majority in politics here. Let me grab this call. Oh. Hi, who's this? It's Al. Al, welcome. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Yeah. I'm I'm not sure why these people are surprised that millennials will go for socialism since they've taught them nothing but socialism their entire educational career. It, it doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and also they're taught that what we have now is capitalism. And they're also taught that capitalism is bad, right? Um, yeah. they're, bl- they're blaming capitalism for really the effects of government intervention. Yeah, and like I said, you know, for this person to be surprised by this just really actually amazes me. I mean, I look at my daughter's school, and she tells me some stuff, you know, like she has one teacher, he's he's a male teacher, he plans on voting for Hillary Clinton simply because of the fact that she's a woman. He can't point out anything she's actually done, you know, no, no policies. Oh, well, she's a woman, that's how we had a woman. Now, is the teacher in question a male or a female? Male. Oh, okay. Because all of us females have been informed in the past week by Madeleine Albright that there is a special place in hell reserved for those women who refuse to support Hillary Clinton. See, if I'm a woman, I must support Hillary Clinton. Otherwise, I just go go to the special place in hell. So, you know, I figure at least I know what my future holds. You know, there's no mystery about oh, yeah. what what's going to happen to me after death, right? Oh yeah. So I mean, <laughs> it just amazes me the way these people think. You know, it's like, no, you're not entitled to anything. You're <laughs> if you vote for somebody without worrying about what their ideas are, you're an idiot. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of um, dismayed at the ninety some odd thousand people in New Hampshire who voted for Donald Trump. This you know, in the New Hampshire primary, because, you know, when you think about it, Donald Trump just represents the fascist side of the totalitarian coin, right? One of the articles, actually, that I have in the program notes for this week is that Sanders and Trump are the same totalitarian candidate. This is an article written by uh, Ben Shapiro. But really, you know, you vote for Sanders, you vote for Trump, you're go- you're voting for government control, and it's just government control for what end? 
Yeah, Trump's super villain, villain nickname, the chameleon. He'll become whatever you want him to become. Now, Ed in the chat room is saying Donald Trump is not fascist. He, he's Donald Trump wants to run it like a business. He wants to make deals. He's going yeah. to let people nominally, like Apple can nominally keep its company, but he's going to tax and, and use bully pulpit or The delusion whatever. of private ownership with strong central government control. That's fascism. <laughs> so He's going to deal with the doctors and deal and deal and deal, which means, you know, okay, yeah, you know, you – you control your practices and your everything else to a certain point, um, but he's you know Trump. Trump is wants to tell everybody in the economy what they should do. You know, the, again, if you go back to that quote from Trump about how he's concerned with this small fraction of quote the economy is going to have this bad thing, he wants to control what happens to every aspect of the economy. All of us are just parts of the economy. You know, you're just another brick in the wall like Pink Floyd. You're just mm-hmm. another part of, of Donald Trump's economy in his view. And he's going to run the whole economy like a business. And yeah, you know, nominal private ownership and stuff, but he wants, you know, to control what happens. Yeah. Well another thing you can use for um the ignorance section is critical race theory, which you know, because this whole thing is blown up because of Beyonce and the Black Panthers during the Super Bowl and everything. You know, mm-hmm. the idea that only white people can be racist, you know, ignoring the fact that that's a racist comment. You know, they're like, well, racism, by definition, can only be white people because it's a system of oppression. No. Racism is no. the belief that your genetics determine your character. <laughs> it doesn't you matter know, what. I did, I did hear about this controversy, and the question is, do you think that the producers of this halftime show of the Super Bowl actually did something really wrong by allowing this to occur? Well, I mean, it is freedom of speech. So, I mean, however, I, I think the controversy has been blown up more than what it should to a certain extent. But my, my you know, you got a lot of this, you know, with Stacey Dash taking basically – our side of it, you know, either you want ex- exclusion or you want inclusion. If you want inclusion, then you got to get rid of stuff like BET, Source Awards, and, you know, the Image Awards where it's all black. You know, you can't you can't have it both ways, you know. Stacey Dash points that out, but others are like, well, you know, it's not racist because we're black, and we can't be racist because only white people can be racist. It's, it's, it's an ignorance that just absolutely amazes me. So you would you would have added that under the topic of ignorance or the category of ignorance for today's oh, program notes, right? <laughs> absolutely, because it's an ignorant belief on on people that that people have that oh well, it's only a white thing because you know you can't be racist you know, unless you're white. You know what though? I just I to me, I guess there is that ignorance, but I I, I think that that type of ignorance that's out there is pretty isolated compared to this issue of not understanding what socialism is and the danger of socialism. I think that that's a far more dangerous ignorance. Well, yeah, the, the socialism is a, ignorance of socialism is a far more dangerous one. However, the ignorance of, of this racism thing is a lot more widespread because an example of it, my, my daughter went to school one day and she had got a brand new iPod and she was showing it to her friends and one of her white friends want to look at it and, you know, to hold it and everything. And I was like, no, it's mine. I'm not, you know, you can look at it, here it is. 
And then one of her black friends who saw the entire exchange asked to see it, and so he's like, no, I just told, you know, it's like, oh, it's because I'm black, right? It's like, no, I just told my white friend she couldn't hold it either, you know? Right. So it's, it's a lot more prevalent, you know, than the socialism, but the socialism obviously is a lot more dangerous because it'll take us down a far worse path far more quickly. Yeah, I mean, I just, I just, you know, there is misunderstandings about racism, racism out there, but I seem to think that this issue of the misunderstanding about what socialism truly is is more urgent. So, yeah, I do. I urge everybody to spread information about what's going on in Venezuela out there and say, look, here is a contemporary example of the consequences of socialism. And don't let them get away with the idea, oh, it's just a temporary crisis due to El Nino and whatever. You don't shut entire shopping malls due to a you know a temporary crisis when you've got it, it, it's a you know, capitalism been, what 30 years in the making yeah. i mean it's it's yeah. been going on for a while it's been a very steady decline it's just gotten more and more rapid as it's become more and more towards its logical conclusion exactly exactly thanks al for your call i've got a couple other people wanting to talk here so i'm going to go ahead and try to give them a shot as well this person's been on hold i think longer hi who's this Hey, Amy, it's Jonathan. Hi, Jonathan. How are you? I'm, I'm well. I, I'm going to ask you, though, what what <laughs> what difference would it make? I'll coin it. No pun intended. What difference would it make to show a millennial the effect of socialism when all these economic examples have been used, you know, in ad infinitum from Cuba to North and South Korea? Isn't the problem, I think, your earlier caller mentioned that, it, it, you know, they think socialism and they think altruism. And they've been taught that self-sacrifice, obviously, is, is the best thing under the sun. And and uh, capitalism is for profit. That's self-interested. And, and that's why, you know, they might not know what socialism is, but they know that it's altruistic, and I think that's why they embrace it. Right. So I think what we need to do is we need to lead them down the path that Orwell eventually found himself, you know, at the end of which was he realized that socialism, as implemented, would lead to totalitarianism like what you've got in 1984. And so the things that I would want to emphasize with the millennials is not necessarily, oh, you know, wealth is redistributed and and it's altruistic so much, but that it's totalitarian, that it's authoritarian, that you're going to have a big, bad central government telling everybody what to do in every aspect of their lives, which is going to be necessary in order to achieve the other goals of, of socialism. I think that's the thing that I would want to communicate more. Right? Uh, I, I think that's a, a very good observation. And I want to add one more quick thing, if I could. Uh, my my feeling is that if it comes down to Trump and Sanders, I hope that people support Sanders, uh, because at least Sanders is explicit about, obviously, what he is. Donald Trump is the face of capitalism for millions and millions of Americans, and, uh, you know, he, he would do a lot more damage to freedom and individual rights than Bernie Sanders would long term, long or short term. No, I, I agree with that. I mean, a lot of people are calling out Trump that he's really not a conservative and things like that. But it doesn't matter how how many times people say it, Trump would become, you know, whatever the current poster boy is for capitalism, which would be the worst disaster ever because he's just a cronyist, you know. Um no, he already is. If you listen to his supporters, part of their argument is that he's a successful capitalist businessman. 
Right. And uh, that's his credibility when obviously he's anything but. Exactly. I agree. I agree. Thanks, um, thank you, Jonathan, and we'll talk soon. Um, thanks for the call, Jonathan. Keep up the good work. Uh, I've got one more call. I'm going to try to squeeze it in here. I've got about 10 minutes left to the show. Hi, who's this? Hey, this is Ed. How you doing, Amy? I'm doing okay, Ed. How are you? Uh, uh, minor cat crisis this week, but... I uh, I read about okay. your minor cat crisis. It it sounds like your cat didn't like pain medication any more than I liked pain medication. No, no, he doesn't like pain either. So we're in a bit of a bit of a bind. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's it. Um, I Donald Trump is not a good guy. Okay, let's. Uh, he's he's not a good guy. But I've I've seen a lot of demonization. You know, he's a fascist, and he is not a fascist. He. He, I mean, the, th- the the things that he's talking he about, a, Ed, are he, he is a purchaser of politi- of politicians, right? I mean, he's a, he's a purchaser of politicians, um, and right. uh, to get and, things and, done and what, the way what, he wants. Well, right, but what he what he's doing is he is basically, um, you know, profiting off of, and he wants to use the system of government controlling the economy to achieve his goals. I mean, he's done that in the past, right? So where government has the power to use eminent domain, you know, he's all fine with that. He thinks, okay, you know, government should want to help him create the limousine parking lot or whatever instead of letting this lady have an apartment building that she lives in, that that's actually a good thing for government to be doing. Yeah, you know, you have private property rights, so to speak, but, you know, can you actually make a you know can you actually refuse to sell it when certain people come for certain uses to you know try to buy it from you no you're not allowed to do that I, um, yeah i mean I, I i okay you know me i'm not in favor of eminent domain either um although it is in the constitution so it's very very hard to argue against for public use it's in the constitution it's very very hard to take a uh a position if you're a politician that I'm, you know, I'm you know against this you know, thing that's in like, the Constitution. It's like, I, think, I think Trump doesn't understand that a lot of the things that he's calling for are fascist, right? So he would say, no way, I'm no fascist, and he would reject a lot of this, but when... The, you know, my, he, my, my objection is that words mean things, and fascism is not just uh, government uh, rules and regulations over producers. That, that's the welfare state. That's what we have to It's a mixed economy. Fascism is total government control. It's a totalitarian ideology. Total government control over the economy combined with nationalism, militarism, and um, the, you know, usually the, the demonization of some other, whether it's... Uh, okay, so make America great again. Make America great again. Um, there, That's right. He has a little it, bit it, of nationalism and, there. And, no, wait, right? wait, 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 wait. And demonization of immigrants, yes, right? Demonization. I, I don't know whether that's quite true. I mean, I admit that there is, you know, there are elements of it, but I, I can't and, imagine that and, make America you know, great again is is uh, it. I mean, it's actually a brilliant campaign. I mean, again, sure. I'm not in favor of Trump, but it's a brilliant campaign strategy. I mean, right. it says but I, I, I'm saying say. that there are there are elements of all of those three things in stuff that he talks about. That's right, but there are elements of those three things in 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 all of the candidates, even the ones I like. I, I, the problem is you can't 
you know, you know, except for certainly Obama would never say anything like "Make America Great Again." Um, but uh, all of the candidates believe, it, to one degree or another, that the government um, should be in charge of, you know, leadership. The government doesn't need to be in charge of any leadership. It just needs to be lead us alone, right? But they all believe that. Bush, Kasich, uh, you know, even even to a certain extent, Cruz. He's always talking about leadership. He's not. That's different than than fascism, right? I mean, we have right, had fascists when, in the United when, States when before, and I mean, Trump when, is when, not one. When he's when he's talking about using government force to dictate how Apple can run its business, right? Apple nominally owns its own business, but he's going to tweak policy to make sure that Apple does what he wants it to do, which is to create more jobs here in the United States. That sounds like, you know, typical fascist economic running to me. And then, you know, like I said, when you combine the other elements, who is the one candidate who seems to, you know, be the anti-immigration candidate, although, again, I agree that other candidates have immigration policies that are probably similar to Trump's, but the one, you know, the Coulter got behind because of the immigration policy is, be, you know, was Trump itself. You know, she, if you are against immigration, you're for Trump. Well, I mean, I, you're certainly not going to convince me to be against Trump on the immigration issue. I mean, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah let's have... Let's have millions of Muslims come to the United States. That'll be a great well, idea. Look I mean, how well no, it's working out in Europe. Well, I mean, no, do this either, right? But in terms of the fact that, you know, it's immigration that, quote, is destroying the economy versus immigration as a security issue, that's more Trump. Yeah, um, I, 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 what you mean, yes, he's he's making both of those. Uh, I mean, in fact, Ted Cruz is making a similar issue. I, I And I think there is an issue there. Um, I, and we don't have time to talk about it. I'd love to talk about it uh, some more. There, there, there is an issue there. Um, basically, if you say that low-wage immigrants are subsidized by government policies, this is true. They are subsidized by government policies. Then they keep the real wages down for uh, Americans who are, who are less subsidized. It's, it's a long conversation. I can't do it in three minutes. But okay. that's well, maybe we'll need to do that base, in the future. That's the basic yeah. issue. Yeah. Okay. okay. Anyway, have a good uh, weekend. And I wish you the best with your cat. That sounds horrible. And, yeah, we, we can debate the issue more in the future. Thanks for calling in, Ed. I do want to point everyone to the remaining stories that I have in the program notes over at DontLetItGo.com. ISIS is another I that I had in the title today. And the things I want to point out there is, First of all, CIA chief has come out with the hypothesis that ISIS has used chemical weapons and may have more. I understand there's going to be a long 60 Minutes interview published this weekend about that. I have a link to a write-up of that. And then just this week, a Minnesota man who was accused of helping his pals join ISIS pled guilty. So, yes, there continues to be recruiting for ISIS and helping ISIS among people here in the United States. So do check that out as well. Um, Finally, I've got a few pieces of good, if you like Ted Cruz, news. If uh, conservatism is your only priority, says Rush Limbaugh, there is no choice other than Ted Cruz. Not an official endorsement, I guess, according to him, but it's about as endorsing as you can get. I would say that that's an endorsement the way that Ted Cruz did a filibuster 
for defunding Obamacare back in 2013. Another uh, story in terms of polls, Cruz would outperform Trump in a race against Clinton, according to a recent poll. Of course, if it's Sanders, maybe we'll have a different story. But if it's going to be Hillary Clinton, Cruz apparently would outperform Trump by five points. Check that out. Also, a new Gallup poll surprisingly shows Ted Cruz with the highest GOP favorable rating. And this is despite attempts of the media to continuously ignore him in the past several weeks after his successes in Iowa and New Hampshire. The New Hampshire success, the third place, was a success. Why? Because he spent so little money per voter. Go check out the comparison between Ted Cruz spent $18 per voter. Donald Trump spent 40 Not bad, right? Um, at least in this one survey, they showed that Bush spent 1200 per candidate. I've seen it be a bit smaller in some other ones, like 800 or so, but still, 800 or 1200 per candidate versus $18? That is ridiculous. And then finally, I do urge you, watch the Texas Lawhawk. I, I have just the Taco Bell commercial posted in the program notes for today. Don't let um, but you can also go to YouTube and check out his other uh, things. Or if you just Google Texas Lawhawk, you'll probably go to his own webpage and he's got his commercials posted there too. So check them out. Have a little bit of fun. I hope you have a good weekend, a great Valentine's Day, and I will talk to you next week. Yeah, go to DontLetItGo.com. Thank you everyone who joined me here today. If you want to continue the discussion, you can post comments over there at the blog. If you want to become a show supporter, it's always Greatly appreciated. Goes into the buttered coffee fund and now into the air conditioning fund. So thank you, those of you who support the show. I will talk to you, like I said, this time, 3 p.m. Eastern time next Friday. Take care.